This morning, as we consider the ninth commandment, I read from two passages, the first being Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, With our tongues will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Now we turn to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. He that doth keep his soul shall be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out, yea, strife and reproach shall cease. He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. The slothful man says, there's a lion without, I shall be slain in the streets. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. 
but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. And that's as far as we read from that chapter. So we consider this morning the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The Heidelberg Catechism expounds the ninth commandment in Lord's Day 43. Question and answer 112. What is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter, nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God, Likewise, that in judgment in all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it, also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember by way of introduction that we are treating the law of God, the Ten Commandments in particular, as the rule for a life of thankfulness for us who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and partakers of his life by a true and living faith. We are speaking, in other words, of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as it comes to expression also in our relationships with our neighbors, including those closest to us, also those within not just our homes but our church family. If we fail to view the Ten Commandments in this way, those Ten Commandments can only serve to condemn us. But we are no longer under condemnation. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, and having conquered the power of sin and death by his own perfect satisfaction. We still have our sinful flesh, which we have to battle constantly. And from that point of view, each of the Ten Commandments still exposes our sinfulness and our need for Christ, our only hope in him. But when we stand before the law, also this Ninth Commandment, we do so standing beneath the cross. The Ninth Commandment, confronts a sin so prevalent, so pervasive 
among us that were we to lose sight of Christ, we would have no hope. And at the same time, only with our eyes fixed upon Christ, do we fight against this sin and learn to guard our speech for the protection of the neighbor and the well-being of the church. The ninth commandment confronts the sin of lying or bearing false witness, but as the catechism makes clear in expounding this commandment from Scripture, the violation of the ninth commandment is much more broad and penetrates far more deeply than the sin of lying. Let's hear it once again. What is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words. That I be no backbiter, nor slanderer. That I do not judge, nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in all judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it, also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. In that light, I call your attention to the ninth commandment from the viewpoint of its positive calling set forth in Lord's Day 43, promoting the honor and good character of my neighbor. We notice, first of all, the principle that underlies this commandment. Secondly, the warning and finally, the correction, promoting the honor and good character of my neighbor. The principle, the warning, and the correction. The principle underlying the ninth commandment is that God has revealed himself by his name. A name which must be honored. And that he is a God of truth. So as we consider those two aspects of the underlying principle of the ninth commandment, I call your attention first to the importance of the name of God. And I do so because we must remember that even these commandments which pertain directly to my relationship to my neighbor have to do first with my relationship to God. To love the neighbor is to be an expression of my love for God. God has revealed himself to us by his names. It isn't my intention this morning to go into those various names of God by which he has revealed himself to us, but whether he sets himself before us in scripture by the name God or Jehovah or Holy One, or the Almighty, or any number of lesser used names, each of those names says something about God 
the God of our salvation, revealing various facets of his being and glory as the one who alone is God. And he's jealous of his name. He upholds the honor of his name and he seeks his own glory. God's name must be honored. We saw that in the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God will see to it that his name is magnified, held in highest honor, and not misused or thrown about as profanity. He works salvation in his people in such a way that they praise his holy name and seek to glorify him in thankfulness for who he is and how he has revealed himself to us as the God of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We confess with the psalmist in Psalm 7 verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. We hear the exhortation in Psalm 29 verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And the plea comes to us in Psalm 34, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. But did you just hear that verse? Do you realize that to magnify Jehovah's name, to exalt his name, we are to do so together? That's because the God who alone has clothed us with his name, as it were, says, if you love my name, if you truly will honor and glorify me, then you uphold the name of the neighbor. And especially that neighbor who is called by my name being Christian. That, as the catechism sets before us, is the positive calling of the ninth commandment, namely, that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. That ought to be impressed upon us when we contemplate the importance of our own name. We read it in Proverbs 22, verse 1 and 2. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Whether a man is rich or poor makes no difference. God is no respecter of persons. But a man's name, his reputation, is important no matter his status in life. 
Do you love God? Would you honor and glorify his name? Of course, when you belong to his son and have been taken into his covenant life and family, 1 John 4 verse 19 expresses it. We love him because he first loved us. But then this follows. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So when we look upon our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must see God's name. We must see God's work. For in seeing his name, we also realize that he calls us to defend and promote as much as we are able the honor and good character of our neighbor. But there is another foundational principle when it comes to our calling to promote the honor and good character of our neighbor. The God who is God alone and who has revealed himself to us by his many names, all of which are precious, is also the God of truth. The Psalms themselves are full of the testimony that God not only knows the truth, not only determines the truth, God is truth. Psalm 33, verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. Psalm 45, which prophesies of the royal majesty of of the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, Proclaims in verses 2 through 4, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth, and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Notice, grace is poured into thy lips. The ninth commandment warns us against the vileness of our lips. But of Christ it is prophesied Grace is poured into thy lips, and he shall ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. I think you already realize how critically important that prophecy was and how important the fulfillment was to our salvation. How we needed Christ not only to serve as king of kings, but as our spiritual head and to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of us, his body. So important is truth to God, 
that he expresses the lie as the very work of the devil and tells his church, buy the truth and sell it not. Proverbs 23, verse 23. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, the word of truth is identified with the gospel of our salvation. He promises in Psalm 145, verse 18, from which we just sang, the Lord is nigh unto all that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. And he assures us in Psalm 91, verse 4, that his truth shall be your shield and buckler, your protection, even over against the lies that might be spoken concerning you. Because God is the God of truth, and he requires that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it. He... He stands before us with this calling. What Samuel proclaimed in 1 Samuel 12, verse 24, was preserved for us by the Lord. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he hath done for you. He who is truth requires that we walk in truth and that we speak the truth. And that means, first of all, that we speak to God and about God in harmony with what God has revealed concerning himself and his perfect works. The truth of Scripture is important. Let us not be among those who disparage the churches for their doctrinal positions and for the confessional stance of the Reformed churches historically. Let us not be among those who dishonor God by saying, we don't have to emphasize the distinctives of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith is that which embraces the truth of the word of God, the truth which God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture and into which he has led and continues to lead his churches by his Holy Spirit. God is truth. We are to cling to him by faith and walk in his truth. But this also means that we must speak the truth with and about our neighbor in a way that honors and glorifies the God of truth. So that when David opens Psalm 15 with the question, as we sang, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The answer is, he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. 
He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. If we are to honor and glorify God in truth, we are also to walk as he calls us to walk toward our neighbor. These are the principles that underlie the ninth commandment and the positive calling to love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it, and also to defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. The warning of the ninth commandment is that we not bear false witness against our neighbor. You understand how easy it is to look upon that pronouncement of God himself in the ninth commandment and to downplay its application. To interpret the commandment strictly according to the words themselves is not exclusive to the hypocritical Pharisees of Jesus' day. We, too, can readily find excuses for our own sins against the ninth commandment. To escape the burning of our consciences, we, too, might be so foolish as to say, well, bearing false witness speaks of a witness in a court of law and lying against our neighbor in testimony in the courtroom. It's like what we read in in Mark 14 when Jesus was tried before the Jewish council and they brought in false witnesses. I've never done such a thing. I'm good. I've not sinned against the ninth commandment. The wisdom of our Heidelberg Catechism is that it recognizes our natural folly and proceeds to expound from Scripture the breadth and depth of the ninth commandment. So it not only points out that bearing false witness speaks of lying, but it also speaks of any expression of the lie and any defilement of the truth, which is essentially an assault upon the glory of God himself as well as the person who is the object of our sin. So as I look at the Catechism's footnotes, of some 13 passages upon which it bases its instruction in this exposition of the ninth commandment, I understand how they answer the question, what is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's word that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil 
unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment in all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it, also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. The warning is necessary, isn't it? Not only do we have our own sinful natures to fight, but the sin confronted in the ninth commandment is a sin that continues to develop in our day with appalling effects in the midst of the church. Frankly, it is discouraging to faithful ministers to preach on the ninth commandment repeatedly and pointedly only to see this commandment violated repeatedly and even increasingly with apparent impunity. We know that the development of this sin also belongs to the perilous nature of the last times. Paul wrote such to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. How many of the sins that he mentioned in the opening verses of that chapter do not involve the tongue and evil speaking? Men shall be, among other things, boasters, proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents. And how often doesn't disobedience to parents involve sinful talk, even lying? He speaks of false accusers. Can there be such? Incontinent, those who lack self-control. And that would include a restraint of speech. He warns against traitors and those who are heady, a term which speaks of rushing into things recklessly, which would include what the Catechism refers to as the sin of judging or joining in condemning any man rashly or unheard. And the inspired apostle, as he unfolds all these sins that characterizes the perilous nature of the last days, summarizes the list by saying of those who walk in such sins, who having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. And then he continues, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. In other words, they enter the dwelling places 
of women, states the apostle, and deceives them so that they are led astray, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice the contrast between the truth of which God is the source and with which he identifies and the lie of which the devil is the father. Now as Jannies and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs, Jannies and Jambres, was also. It is this sin that makes a person most like the devil. He abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus said that in John 8, verse 44, exposing the seriousness of the sins of those who rejected his truth and therefore who rejected him. Ye are of your father the devil, he said. Such is the seriousness of the sin against the ninth commandment in whatever form that takes. That's the seriousness of false doctrine, of leading astray the sheepfold of God. Every minister ought to shake in his boots over the seriousness of his calling to be faithful to God's truth. But that's the seriousness of our living in the truth, also in our relationship to the neighbor and especially to our brothers and sisters in the church. As I said earlier, this sin has increased. We live in a world in which our leaders think nothing of backbiting and slandering and bearing false witness in order to advance their own political agenda. The news media profits from blackening the names of many and encouraging people to join in condemning those who do not conform to their agendas. But the ungodliness of the world has swept like a hurricane through the church. Contributing to the advance of this sin is the ready access we have to speaking slander, gossiping, backbiting, and bringing to expression a rush to judgment. In years past, you had to make the effort of actually speaking face to face, gathering with people, talking, 
There, the sin exposed here certainly came to expression. The church had to be warned against this sin repeatedly. Even in the New Testament, James James chapter 3 is a passage very familiar to us, having been expounded repeatedly in connection with the ninth commandment. There, the tongue is exposed as a fire, a world of iniquity that ignites a conflagration, a massive and destructive fire set on fire of hell. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God, James 3 verse 9. That's why When you smite the neighbor with your evil speaking, you smite God. The Apostle Paul, in setting forth the truth of the gospel to the churches of Galatia, wrote in Galatians uh, Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15, for brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Only let use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. And then follows this. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And how much biting and devouring of one another shall we participate in? You see, now we don't even have to make the effort of speaking face-to-face with people. We've gone from the telephone to email and text to social media. We've even made it possible for people to hide behind anonymity in bringing accusations, spreading gossip, perhaps even bearing false witness against another. We have heard of, if not seen, posts on social media that defame the names of fellow church members, even church leaders. We face the troubling and divisive consequences of people calling into question God's truth, falsifying men's words, slandering Christ's bride, and joining in judging others rashly and unheard. And we hear that upon reading such posts, there are many that respond with 
likes And do we wonder about the truth of what is set forth here in our Heidelberg Catechism? That walking in such sins would bring down upon us the heavy wrath of God? Where is the love of God that loves and speaks the truth uprightly? Or are our consciences so seared that they no longer know what it is to speak the truth uprightly? Do we believe the simple admonition given by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4, verses 29 and 30, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Where are we? when it comes to standing before the calling to defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Do we understand the seriousness of our calling? Do we put a stop to such evil speaking when we are able? Do we confront those who commit such sins in Facebook posts when we observe such things and seek their repentance? And failing to secure their repentance, do we bring it to the elders of the church to pursue with the loving exercise of Christian discipline? These are life and death matters. Do we understand that? Do we dare stand in contempt before the living God when it comes to the ninth commandment? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Scripture makes clear that those who walk in such sin those who persist in impenitence show themselves outside the kingdom of God. May God mercifully bring to true repentance. And that brings me to my concluding point this morning. 
It is necessary that we know the correction that brings us into conformity to the ninth commandment. The commandment itself, and certainly as faithfully expounded by the Heidelberg Catechism, leaves none of us guiltless. The concluding words of Ephesians 4, which I just read, point us to the need for forgiveness. And forgiveness is ours only in Jesus Christ for the sake of his perfect satisfaction in bearing our punishment to the death of the cross. That forgiveness is ours for Christ's sake by faith and in the way of repentance. He who walks in impenitence will not inherit the kingdom of God. That was the word of God in Psalm 12 that we read earlier, verses 3 and 4. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, with our tongues will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? The Lord loves his own. The Lord protects his own. The Lord will defend his bride for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side, when the vilest men are exalted. In Christ alone is our righteousness. In Christ alone is our life, which means in Christ alone do we walk in love for God and for the neighbor. Do you love him? then you also love his people. Then you also love his bride, the members of which he bought with his precious blood, including you. In that knowledge, which is the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of faith, you will love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. In that knowledge, which is the knowledge of faith, you will also defend and promote as much as you are able the honor and good character of the neighbor. Amen. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves in thy presence 
conscious of our own sin and guilt, and we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, pleading that thou wilt turn us to him in the way of repentance. Grant, Heavenly Father, that seeing in him the price that he had to pay for our guilt and sins, we live in thankfulness to thee, loving thee and the neighbor. For thy name's sake, amen.